1: ACAST
0: recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So Rusty Egan, welcome first of all. In terms of, well, particularly the 1980s, in terms of music and culture, I think you've been one of the most underrated and overlooked people which is you know surprising to me really and I've only that's only sort of really come to me when I've been doing um the research and looking into what your legacy has been which I hope we talk about through this interview but I want to start with your early life and what sort of music and culture when you were a very young child were you exposed to at home
1: um I'm Irish and my parents uh, had a, a band and they were Irish musicians playing Irish music and then obviously pop music from the 60s in the uh, Irish part of London, Kilburn. But I didn't come from Kilburn. Um, my parents played, uh, had a band and basically uh, my, his, my father had three brothers and they um, all lived in London and they all frequented Irish pubs and clubs, and I got dragged along. As like, the kid sitting on the step with a Coca-Cola and a packet of crisps and told to be quiet, you know. So
0: did they actually, did they value a cultural life, or did they see their life not as a cultural life, just as sort of like a a musician's, almost like a travelling musician's
1: life, I reckon? No, they had seven children, my parents, and, um, they eventually got all of them to England. They, I came to England when I was six. And my parents had already been in England about seven or eight years. And uh, I had three older siblings, four older siblings, but only three of them were in England. And another sister I'd never even met who was younger. She was like three or four years old. So basically, my parents came to England and worked like uh, Johnny Lydon often points out. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. <laughs> and that's what they got. That was their welcome. So how do you think that not
0: being, not growing up, essentially, for those first six years with your parents then, how how do you think that affected you in your life? Did it make you a tougher person or change you in any way?
1: Well, this is very, very weird because... Um, I personally, as soon as you get into shrink stuff, I just slam the door on it. I don't go there. Um, but I obviously was affected by everything that happened in my life, which um, accumulated in a in a in a massive loss. To be honest with you, um, and as soon as I open my mouth on the subject, most people are like, "Yeah, yeah, yawn, forget it, yada yada." So <clears throat> I don't really go there, you know.
0: Right I mean I've done about 6 years of therapy so I've Yeah. There.
1: Yeah I don't I don't really want to go there I want to just take each day as it comes from now but yeah there was a very dark period in my life and that would have that would have all accumulated from my um my upbringing.
0: So what actually got you into drumming what attracted you?
1: Uh well number 1 um my parents kept booking drummers and the bloke would show up and he'd look like Elvis and he seemed a bit cool and he had a car and pick up my parents and they'd go off to a pub with a sax and an organ and a drummer and meet the bass player. And then um, I really liked the drums, Um, as in watching my parents and the drummer would do really cool things and I kind of could tap away on a couple of tin boxes and biscuit tins, which I'd already done from when I was in Ireland. As a matter of fact, I remember it. So when I got to about 13 or 14, my eldest brother gave me a drum kit. And uh, I immediately played it. It was like Christmas. So So I, I was a natural drummer, yeah.
0: So your your parents, did they know Phil Seaman or were they were they fans of him?
1: My dad was a fan of Phil Seaman, yeah. He used to talk about him, but um um I then listened to my dad's record collection and um found Jacques Dijonnet and you know, lots of uh jazz drummers. And then uh the, the drummer that, that was with my parents was a guy called um Richard James Burgess, who was a New Zealander. And well, um, the
0: Richard James Burgess.
1: Yeah, he played drums with my parents. And then he said, I'll come round on a Saturday in early before I pick up your parents in my Aussie van and go off to the gig. And I'll give you a couple of lessons, you know, paradiddles and stuff. So um, I had a practice pad and a couple of nice drumsticks and left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, you know. And then I went to see his band, which were called Landscape. I was about probably 17 then, um, and I went to see them. And then he got me to go to the National Youth Jazz Orchestra on a Saturday morning with Bill Ashton. So basically, I was following jazz, uh, which is really difficult drumming. And I was into Bill Bruford and, you know, intricate drummers, um, Billy Cobham. So basically, I really got into drumming. Like, there's a film, isn't there? There's a film about a drummer. They brought it out. I forgot what it's called. But anyway, I was, like, really pushing myself, like you would any sport or ballet or something. But really, I was never going to be uh, as good as these drummers in jazz drumming terms. And, of course, I did love pop music, David Bowie, Roxy music, you know. And um I really liked... Simon Kirk, who was the drummer in bad company, all right now. And um, at about 18, I found the local club disco, and it had a band on a Monday night. And um, they were called Bojangles. And I went there, and the drummer had a 26 inch bass drum, not a 20 inch or a 22 inch. He had this massive. He had a cowbell. He had a six-inch deep Ludwig snare. He had a Ludwig Speed King pedal, 18-inch ride, and a couple of 16-inch Zildjian crashes. And he had, on his um, hi-hat, he had a a tambourine attached to it. So the bottom line was, he was a very straightforward drummer, and he had... A very powerful drum kit, you know, like rock. They were doing Queen and, you know, Led Zeppelin. And, and the bottom line was, yeah, the room was full of hairy blokes with um, sheepskin coats and long hair and sort of flares and platform shoes. And I wasn't a hairy bloke. Um, and I was like more of a skinny mod, you know. But I liked the drumming more than anything. So, um, it sort of changed my view of well, You're never, you're never going to be the greatest drummer in the world. But that drummer in Bojangle, well, he's the greatest drummer in that band. You know, <laughs> so I kind of started to go a bit more forward
0: to the floor. You know, I mean, you mentioned the Natal uh, Youth Youth Orchestra, and it seems like a little bit like a parallel to the Elton John story that. His study wasn't something that he really wanted to do, but it seems like it, it gave him something. And you mentioned it was like that film Whiplash. Um, yeah,
1: there you wh- go, yeah.
0: Which is a a really tough representation of being a drummer. I mean, you know, the teachers in Whiplash were pretty
1: hard on them. Was it like that in reality? Well, no, I was pushing myself. I didn't have a teacher. And the National Youth Jazz Orchestra had four drummers, like a a football team, and you were in the reserve. And when Bill said, right, you're on, you basically had to read the music. You had to read the drum music, called the dots. Well, every time Bill said, right, you're on, it was fairly obvious the other three drummers were way better than me. And um, Richard, which is much more interesting, uh, had access to a guy called Dave Simmons and he gave me the equivalent, the size of a laptop without a case just a, a motherboard and um, some uh, jack plugs and he said touch that and I touched this jack plug with my finger and it went boo 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 and I went, oh, you goes, touch, touch that one there. Gush, gush. And then there was another one, thud, thud, you know. So I could go, thud, gush, thud, gush, boo, boo. And he goes, it's like um, an electronic drum. And I went, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, 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 he said, well, we haven't finished building it yet. It's a bloke called Dave Simmons. So um, I was probably about 19 then and uh, went auditioning for bands, you know. And um, one of those bands was The Clash, 1976. I was about 19 in 76. And um, I played the drum to them. It was the easiest gig in the world. One, two, three, four. Jane and Jones world, it's the Jane and Jones world. Can you do this? Yeah. Can you do this one? Career opportunity is the only job you get. Yes. All right, we'll let you know. Can you come back tomorrow? And that went on for three months. And basically, we got a gig tomorrow. ICA. You're not playing. Tory Crimes is playing. So I met Terry Crimes, and he goes, "I don't know what's wrong with them. They want you to be. Um, they want you to be the fourth integral member of the band, and, and in tune with their." Politics and uh, England's burning with boredom, and I'm so bored with the USA. And of course, me and Terry were like, "Yeah, yeah, all all right," you know. It's not exactly rocket science, is it? I'm brought up in an era,
0: and I think we're roughly the same age, where David Bowie was probably the most important f- person in my world. And you mentioned Bowie and you mentioned Roxy Music, Brian Ferry. And and what they represented, not just their music, but what they represented was a, was a big thing. What did Bowie and, and Ferry represent for you when you were growing up?
1: Well, fashion and music, for me... Always were intertwined. Like I said, I was in a pub full of long haired hippies and I wasn't one. But because I was dressed like in a mod or I was wearing Fred Perry's and stay pressed, and you know, I was into fashion. I was like when I was 15, 16, 17, there's no way I would wear anything that um, was. And cool, you know, so I'd gone through Crombies, and I'd gone through that whole teen thing, so by like 1920, um, all that era, David Bowie kept being the coolest guy, Brian Ferry kept being the coolest guy, the videos, as in performances on TV, uh, the artwork, the album covers, the clothes, that's... That made the music all the better for me, you know. Um, and then there were like really over the top stupidness people, like the Sweet with uh, their three foot high <laughs> boots, and you know the bloke from the from the Slade with his funny haircut, and it was I was really into all that, you know. So fashion and music. And then there was just loads of crap, you know, that had nothing to do with fashion or music, you know, like Brotherhood of Man or, or, you know, all that crap. No, so Bowie, Roxy, and obviously these weird blokes called Craftwork who wore suits uh, and had short hair and looked like blokes in an office sitting at a computer. It was, it attracted me, you know, it interested me, look at album covers and in those days, that's about all you had. Ralph and Florian album cover. Two blokes sitting in a room with egg boxes on the ceiling, surrounded by some synthesizers. I was very interested in that. And Brian Eno, of course, you know.
0: All that, um, that German era of Neu, Kraftwerk, Tangerine well, Dream. I did consider them all
1: hippies, though. I, I considered them all hippies because they were all long-haired hippies, including Kraftwerk, who were, in 1971, long-haired hippies. I'd not I had anything against hippies, but I just put Jeff Rotol and Van de Graaff generator and yes, and I just put them all into prog rock. I didn't, I didn't really go for prog rock, you know. But um, whatever his name was um, on the keyboards in yes, Rick Wakeman, surrounded by keyboards, sort of. I was very interested in it. I liked Dave Greenslade. I like looked at the pictures of the keyboards. I liked synthesizers, but they weren't really on any really great records. Son of My Father by Chippery Tip had a synthesizer on it, and there was probably Popcorn and the Doctor who theme tune, but there wasn't much. So Roxy Music had a keyboard player, and uh, Brian Ferry sat down at the piano, and Elton John obviously sat down at the piano, but he was singer songwriter No, I loved the band with the keyboard player, and uh, that was Roxy Music. And Bowie obviously had great keyboard players, and obviously with um, Mick Ronson doing the orchestrations and arrangements on Lou Reed, and I used to read the credits. You know, I knew who sang backing vocals, who was on bass, you know, and I used to follow musicians like um, Steve Gadd or, you know, drummers. Oh, he played on that. And, oh, you know, Herbie Flowers played on that. And Phil Collins played on uh, Brian Eno's album. So I followed musicians.
0: The Bowie trilogy, Berlin trilogy, obviously also played heavily into your uh, development and what you clearly really liked.
1: The Clash... Seventy six, their their um inauguration to join the band was no Elvis Beatles or the Rolling Stones. So I'm always quoting, and I've probably said it loads of times, what are the Roans ever done for us. I was always saying to Mick and Joe, yeah, but Lou Reed's all right. Oh yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, but Bowie's all right. Yeah, but all the rest of them, and it was always like that. And I'd be going. Yeah, what about Crawford? Oh, forget them. It was like, look, Rusty, all that old hippie rock and Rod Stewart blondes have more fun. What does that mean to a bloke on a council estate? You know, all that. So there was this sort of argument all the time. And anyway, that's why we only listened to reggae. And they had a jukebox in the rehearsal room, which only had reggae. And the album Culture, Cl- Culture Two Sevens Clash, was the, the album of the day, you know, and Don Letts was the DJ in the Roxy and only played, the, you know, dub reggae plates and punk. And then I heard television Marky Moon and I was gone, you know, suddenly it was like American punk, you know, oh, bloody hell, talking heads. Oh, wow, Blondie. Oh, you know, Richard, hell. And the Iggy Pop stuff um, had always been there, but now... Iggy and Bowie quoted on Kraftwerk, um, Trans Europe Express. Now I started to get it even more. I started to join the dots and go, oh, Hansa by the wall, German, Neu, Michael Rowder, oh, it all sort of fell into place. So really, I think Bowie living in Berlin, Iggy being his mate, cleaning up from drugs and rock and roll, a man who felt worth skinny and uh, messed up rock star. Um, but with the influence of Brian Eno, who'd already been out and worked with Mobius Rodelius, suddenly it joined all the dots for me. So the, the, the hands by the wall is, is the two Iggy pop albums, Lust for Life and the Idiot. Um, and it's also the heroes, um, and, um, the two other albums, his entire five year period of, of albums out there
0: Low and Lodger, I think
1: Really, yeah Low and, Roger, and Lodger were the soundtrack to the basis of the Blitz you know, you throw in Grace Jones and and all the other stuff but really that, I mean, I used to play the entire side of Crawford album early, but I then played Jean-Michel Jarre, the whole album early. I liked what you'd call now ambient music, you know, Mobius and Cluster. <coughs> so, I started to like really long. In the meantime, Punk was two minutes, three minutes, you know. It was, it was, it was becoming less and less important to me, you know. When you were in the class, was that when you met Glenn, Glenn Matlock? Yeah, Mick Jones introduced me. As you can tell, I'm not a shy bloke. And uh, I had a lot of front. And I always have had, and I'm very arrogant, which people find either an asset or um, a defect. Um, And Mick and I have remained friends 40 years. Um, He said, look, Russ, um, it's not going to happen, but you should meet Glenn. So by that time, I'd stayed friends with, with the Clash, but never joined them actually joined Snatch, who you probably never heard of, <coughs> who made a record with Brian Eno. Um, never got out of rehearsal room. Um, I was friends with Billy Idol. Um, I went out to all the Clash gigs, met everyone there, you know, Mark um, P from uh, Sniffing Glue. Uh, I just met everyone, Adrian Frills, all the journalists, John, John who was managing... Um, uh Gen X, I saw the Buzzcocks slits, um I was everywhere. I was out everywhere, every gig. And about a year later, yeah, I met up with Glenn. He said, oh, I've been thrown out the pistols. I'm gonna put a band together. And yeah, so really out of the frying pan into the fire, you know.
0: Yeah, it was in a way, because you mentioned you mentioned in the clash you didn't really, it wasn't your thing, you know what I mean? You didn't you weren't into their politics particularly and also uh, musically or expressively as a a drummer
1: it wasn't just because somebody tells you what to do you don't automatically do it so basically Bernie was telling me you know we got 10 drummers mate you know and I said well take one of them then what do I fucking care is that kind of attitude and at the same time Joe was like but I like that attitude and I like Rusty And he's a bloody great drummer. And that other bloke, he's all right. He's all right. He's all right. So it was kind of like the the Clash drummer story went on for about a year and a half. It wasn't five minutes. And to be honest with you, I got top of the job because he played with Gary Barnacle. And I was playing with the Ruts, who weren't even the Ruts. They were some musicians out in Harrow, where my parents lived. And I said, guys, you need to ring this number. And Dave Ruffy, I gave him my drum kit, sold him my drum kit from the rich kids. I mean, I was connected to all the musicians. It was like there's a gig. And Topper, he lived in like Dover. And for him to come up to London for an audition for a band that had management and now a record deal, as far as he was concerned, this was bloody the best thing ever. And when they said, just shut your mouth, cut your hair, wear this outfit, Topper went, yes, sir. Three bags full, you know. And, uh, and I, I should have done the same thing. But I just had that attitude, didn't I, you know. And sometimes your attitude is good for you or it's bad for you. You know that. I don't like your attitude, you know. It's not, I'm not telling anyone to have a bad attitude. But I am, having them, I am telling them to have a self-respect in your own values.
0: You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, you clearly know what, what you want. I mean, I think that's something that's that's really come across that you actually well, uh, know what you want. Was that were the Rich Kids uh, a band where you could bring in I mean you brought in Mick, uh, Mick Ronson, didn't you? So to produce. No, that was
1: that that was uh Glenn Matlock. The Rich Kids was Glenn Matlock's band, and we tried to do what Glenn Matlock wanted, taking in consideration he'd already been into Sex Pistols. He'd already been cited as the main writer of Anarchy and all the rest of it. So when he said, I've got this song, that was it. It was Glenn's song. So bottom line was we did his song Rich Kids because he wanted a monkey's. He wanted We're the Rich Kids, guys, too much for you and all that. Um, He never told me, don't do this drum, fill" or don't do that. But he did say, keep it simple. And I found that difficult, (laughs) having been a bit of a jazz drummer. Um, But after maybe six or seven songs, Midge and I went, what about marching men? About the anti-Nazi, and at the time, Midge and I were like really against all the violence in punk, and there was a lot of violence. And uh, the Sex Pistols fans were being incited by Sid Vicious uh, to hate the rich kids. So we had a lot of bottles thrown at us and spe- spit in, and you know, it was pretty violent. So uh, we did this bum 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 boom, da ba 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 bum dum 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 dum, 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 dum b, ba 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 bum and a little military soldiers and obscenities written every place written by the small man the stupid human race never again, and uh, it wasn't Glenn's song, but he went mm, yeah yeah all right you know, of course Midge had songs like like young girls you know and it was like these were Midge's songs. And I tended to just play the drums, Um, I did question the lyrics, you know, and Glenn had a lot of uh, animosity, only arsenic and, you know, he had some songs which were sending a message to Leiden and, you know, whoever. But, you know, I kind of thought, this is great. I'm very happy in this band. I love Midge, love Steve New, Glenn's great. So I was a very happy bunny getting 50 quid a week (laughs) instead of signing on. (laughs) Gave my drum kit to Dave Ruffy and bought a new drum kit. You know, that kind of thing.
0: I mean, Gary Kemp said that the rich kids were the bridge, basically, between uh, punk and new romanticism.
1: Well, because I um, still liked my fashion, and now I was in a band with an ex-ex-pistol who was wearing Vivian Westwood, um, and I had the money in my pocket to hit the uh, Portobello Road or Acme attractions. I then had the wardrobe to go with it—the lovely t-shirts and the uh, the polka dot and leopard skin trousers and a pair of leather trousers and a and the Westwood boots, you know. So no, I was really into the image the artwork, Mick Ronson's gonna produce the album. Wow, wow I'm, in, I'm in it, this is it. Midge um, bought the synth, and I'd already heard boo, 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 boo. And I was like, oh, I wanna bring in the, the electronic drums. And if you look at the video of Marching Men, we had the neon lights, which were highly inspired by the David Bowie stage neon light tour. Where he had a whole bank of white lights behind him, and he was wearing those brilliant trousers and the lovely granddad t-shirt. I mean, the fashion, the haircut, everything was important to me. So, rich kids, we were trying to bring that into it, which is what obviously Gary Kemp saw. Oh, they're not punks. And they're not, I don't know, what are they? And look at look what Steve News wearing, and look at Glenn. It was a mix. The clothes were very important, the videos, all that, you know? I mean,
0: this is where you met Steve Strange, isn't it? He was a fan
1: of the rich kids. So- yeah, well, he was a fan of sex pictures, actually. And he'd already been in a band with Chrissy Hind, and they were called the Moores Murderers, <laughs> you know? It was all like shock, 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 you know? There was um another band. Uh, 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 there were some bands coming out with sort of, paedophile records and anything to shock people, you know, it was like shock value stuff and uh, punk music with them um, is now, you know, being banned all over the country and, and Susie Sue had a Nazi swastika on her clothes, you know, so there was a lot of everybody like shocking people, you know, uh, we were kind of like, mm, you know, let's try and find our own way. Our artwork and photography was all handled by, um, by um, Glenn, it was Glenn's mate, Al McDowell from Rockin' Russians. So Midge and I didn't really have a say-so, you know.
0: So what what did you make of Steve Strange when you first met him?
1: I thought he was great, I thought he was a great guy. He, you know, he was like the only gay in the village. I had no yes. idea of gay, you know. Um, <laughs> he's just a guy who's really into fashion and really into music and was prepared to, uh, you know, summer lift from a lorry driver to get to London and had nowhere to stay. And, uh, you know, you could go out, go to a punk club and then crash on someone's sofa, which happened to be me. You know? So, so did uh, you did you go to
0: the gay clubs with him? I mean, well, I was the, in all the gay clubs at great, that
1: time. The great thing about it is I've always been open-minded about anything, you know. Um, uh, and I didn't know that some of the clubs were gay clubs. I was naive. He said, oh, I'm just going to go to this club. And again, like I said, I didn't know he was gay. And I didn't know there were loads of skinheads that were gay. What? There's skinheads in here and they're kissing. Fucking hell. I was, like, quite shocked. So it didn't take me long, a couple of visits to a club, and I sort of worked out that there was a whole underworld of men that were you know, into fashion, into punk, a lot of builders and, you know, people I had no idea in the world were gay. So what did gay mean? It didn't mean anything other than you can't really go around telling people about it. So I didn't go around telling people about it.
0: No, not in that era. But the other interesting thing, I mean, I'm a gay man and I, my straight friends would come with me to a gay club because yeah. they they could meet women.
1: oh well I did I did do very well thank (laughs) you very much um, from uh, going to gay clubs and it's a very weird thing because the girls love gay men loved how beautiful they all were and I think became sexually aroused with the music the dancing really beautiful guys and then they'd meet me in the toilet and go you're not gay no and it was like a big smile on their face like I've hit the jackpot here and you know 20-year-old skinny guy in leather trousers and in a band, you know. And he's not gay. <clears throat> Literally parade you to all their friends at the bar. I've met Rusty, and he's in a band. Oh, and he's not gay. <laughs> it was like great big, like, can't believe it. And also those girls, they were there because in the straight world, guys would be pushing bottles into other guys' faces if you looked at his girl, you know. It was like really a violent time. So they went to gay clubs.
0: That's amazing you say that. I forgot how violent it was with the, you know, there was the, the fascists on the street. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, I then a, I've there got was some song. violence in pubs and clubs. It was incredible. Well, I've,
1: got a, I've got a piece of music called Ultra V and I made a video for it and it's on YouTube. And it starts with Clockwork Orange. And it's basically, uh, underneath it says, in the late 70s, it was a very violent time and you had to be very brave to go out clubbing.
0: Hey, y'all. I'm Kiki Palmer. I'm an actress, a singer, an entrepreneur, and a Virgo, I'm just the name of you. I'm proud to introduce you to the Baby This Is Kiki Palmer podcast, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the dopest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning in my mind. What happened to sitcoms? It's only fans, only bad. I want to know, so I
1: asked my mom about
0: it. On Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, no topic is off limits. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app now there's steve strange you mid in the in in the rich kids so tell me about how visage actually started
1: well midge and i became roommates on the tour with rich kids and all the gigs and all the things so we'd um, be in some horrible Holiday Inn, or something, and told you got to be up at seven in the morning, so you got to go clock out bed. And of course, you put the telly on, just crap. So I'd be, Oh, I love Bowie, I love it. Oh, I love your guitar, I want to get the Yamaha SG 2000. Oh, wow, John McGee has got that. He's in magazine. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Aren't they a great band? You should. And basically, have you heard of Ultravox? And he was going, No. I said, oh, you got here of UltraVox, they're amazing. Of course, they were all splitting up, you know, all these bands. And uh, and I basically was a music television. I basically Midge hadn't got as much info on music as I had. He had a lot of older music, he's older than me, and he knew about you know. Um, Alex Harvey band or Thin Lizzy, and you know he knew about all these real rock bands, and he'd been in cover bands, you know, in Glasgow, and he he could play Thin Lizzy with his eyes closed, which was quite amazing because he ended up going on tour in America with Thin Lizzy with no rehearsal, just walked down stage when Gary Moore quit. Now Midge is an amazing accomplished musician. Um, I, was actually, I was actually doing a gig with him, as in I was the DJ and he was being mid and uh, the Human League were headlining and they had an illness in the band. I think Phil lost his voice. And they are like 20, 30,000 people waiting for Human League. And Midge was doing 30 minutes and then he was told, can you do an hour and 15 minutes? And he went, yeah, all right, no problem. Got hold of the band and added another hour and 15 minutes and then did another 15 minute encore and stole the show. You know, you've paid 35 quid to see the Human League and the support bands are all like Johnny H. Jazz and, you know, and, and Midjut. And you go, oh, he's okay. And he comes out and he does hit after hit after hit. You go, oh, my God. I forgot how many hit songs this bloke has written, you know. And then he does Bizarre and they're going, oh, I forgot he was in Bizarre. Then he does the Top of the Pop theme tune. Oh, my God, I forgot he did that. You know what I mean? And he does all the Ultravox hits. You forget they had about 10 top 20 tracks. You go, I can't remember that. But when you're there, you suddenly go, oh, my God, All Stood Still. Oh, my God, you know, Monument. I mean, it was like, he really is an amazingly accomplished musician. But the influence, it's really important, because Steve Strange influenced me immensely, you know, took me out to all these gay clubs, all these shops, all these hairdressers, you know, a whole world of fashion, that I saw the importance. You know, Freddie Burretti who designed David Bowie's clothes in the uh, 70s, went to the club called the Sombrero. So we went to the Sombrero. That's
0: the one with the lit dance floor, isn't it? Yeah, the one with
1: Adam and the Ants video. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Steve Barron did that.
1: I knew Steve Barron. I knew Siobhan Barron, Cucumber. Yeah. And then he did uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, didn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's still going strong. So, okay, now you, Vis- visage is sort of at the start, and you decided to do a cover as the demo. I think the Jaeger and Evans track
1: in the year twenty five twenty well, five. What what happened was that um, my collection of records. Um, I got to sort of spend a lot of time with Midge, and he was living in a bed you know. So I was playing him, um, Phil Collins, playing the drums on the B-side of King's Lead Hat, um, which is called RAF, the Red Army Faction, taking him to late-night cinema and watching Fassbinder movies and, and uh, Polanski and all this. And basically, I had a very, a very um, powerful persona. Uh, he got a phone call to join Thin Lizzy and I got phone call to join the skids. And by this time, the boo boo, I had the actual SDSC drum pads and a CR78 drum machine, which was um, uh, used on Fade to Grey, you know, the, the intro. So the, the point was, I'm mad on this type of music. And Midge is going, Hiroshima Monomua, what a song! What is that drum machine? Oh, I said, it's the CR77. Uh, I, I, but there's a new one out, 78, you know. Anyway, so we were in equipment and Midge had the Yamaha CS30 or 80. I'm not sure which one. So we got this demo time at EMI and I would got hold of a magazine by then and I got hold of John McGiick, who I, I was loving John McGiick. And he, he played the sax. So I said, you gotta join this band I'm putting together and play sax. I've already got a guitarist, Midge, you of course I'd love you to play guitar. So I came up with this bum 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 strum pattern and then midge got the mini moog and did the guitar. John McGee did da do do da do da on the saxophone inspired by Lowe, you know, in uh, Bowie's sax on Lowe, and um, that's called The Dancer, because of me, I wanted to call it The Dancer, I wanted people to dance to the music, and then we said, "Uh, let's try the drum machine, and the, the Dave Simmons drums, and the perfect track was in the year 2525, so that's the SDSC drums. And then Midge got on the vocoder. And we were suddenly Kraftwerk, you know. And that was it. We were like, this is the sound of the future. This is what we've got to do, you know. And I'd gone to Berlin and written blocks on blocks, as in the words, written all the words, because I stood by Daimora, which is the, the wall. In German, and I went out to Düsseldorf and met Kraftwerk. So I was like armed with all this music, and by now Steve's my non-paying flatmate. I'm going to stay for a night, or a week, a month, a year. Yeah, all right, mate. Yeah. So I got this flatmate, and uh, we moved into Karen O'Connor, Des O'Connor's daughter. She had a flat in Notting Hill Gate, which was right opposite the um the, the Gate Cinema. So I spent all my nights watching movies in there, which were highly influential. And Midge came along too. And I think Vienna is based on um, The Third Man. The Third Man, the film, and Orson Welles. Also,
0: sort of parallel to that, I think that must have been the time where you started to instigate with Steve, I presume, or I don't know if it was you alone, the Blitz
1: Club. What happened was we went out to the clubs. And he took me to all the clubs and I heard all the DJs and I took from them what I thought was great. Le Vion Rose by Grace Jones. I Feel Love, From Here to Eternity. Catman um, Do. There was like a load of European music. Space, Magic Fly. Um, there was a load of uh, Georgia Moroder, The Chase, to basically add it to my record collection, television, uh, you know, all the records I had, Bowie, Kraftwerk, Ultravox. And I basically said, look, it's all right, these gay clubs. I like the girls too. And I think that we should get our own place on a Tuesday because the violent thugs don't go out on a Tuesday, and uh, we could find some little dive. So there were a lot of what you call clip joints, where drunk, wealthy people who were out in Soho were looking for a red light, and they'd end up in some basement with some girl trying to sell them a £200 bottle of champagne that had a label stuck on it, but really was a nine ninety nine bottle of champagne. So they were called a clip joint. So basically we found a clip joint called Billy's. And we told the bloke was no one in here. you got no one here. We'll bring a hundred people here. And he was like, Yeah, really? On a Tuesday in November. Yeah. In the recession. You know. Well, none of that meant nothing to us. It's 50p to get in, and it was like 75p or a pound for a drink. So I just played the records and we invited everyone. So the Blitz came after I went to Berlin and collected all those records and went to Dusseldorf. So it was all like the late 78, early 79. And that was when I was recording with the skids and Midge was in touring with... So we basically recorded a couple of demos, i.e. for this project. And Midge came up with the name Bizarre, which means face, and we needed a face, and it wasn't going to be me or Midge, so we'll get someone, a sort of Grace Jones, a sort of Bowie, and if you look at disco records, none of them write anything, you know, Grace Jones doesn't write songs, Amanda Lear doesn't write songs, there were all these disco divas that sang songs, they were produced by people like Georgia Moroda, or John Luongo or someone, so, um, Tom Moulton. There were all these massive records in clubs, you know, born to be alive, born to be alive. There were all these like disco records. And the these pop stars had number ones all over the world, but nobody knew what they were. Patrick Jouvet. And it was like Sheila B. Devotion. And uh, I thought, no, uh, disco dance music made with synthesizers with a star like Bowie. Uh, Gary Newman didn't exist then, you know, so there wasn't anyone, you know? And that's what we thought Visage would be. He, the star, would go out to all these nightclubs and lip sync to Fade to Grey. And we don't have to go anywhere. As a matter of fact, we want to make a video. You know, I'd seen an English man in New York by Godly and Cream. And I said to Polydor, we want we want Godly and Cream. Everything that we wanted, there was a, a hurdle. Now, you don't make a video. You go on tour of universities as a support band. No, we don't want to do that. Well, we don't want to give you any money and make a video. All right. Well, we'll bloody do it ourselves then. It was all out.
0: You know. Yeah, Kevin Godley told me about that Englishman in New York track that they had and how that video actually propelled
1: their career as. Well, also, video the, guy, the guy who did the robots, he ended up doing the uh, rocket, Herbie Hancock. Yeah. Uh, and I signed that, believe it or not, because I signed Bill Laswell, who co wrote that. Oh, wow. Uh, and he co wrote I Could Be Wrong, I Could Be Right, I Could Be Black, I Could Be White. Pill. As a matter yeah. of fact, I just came from a meeting. When you opened this conversation, what did you say when you opened this conversation? You are probably the most underrated, unknown, bloody, bloody, blah. Remember? Yeah. Well, uh, the list is endless of you saying, I didn't know that. I'm the drummer on the scene, tune to the top of the pops. Oh, I didn't know that. I signed Johnny H. Jazz. Oh, you didn't know that. I could just keep going. I've, I made Africa Bombard, biggest tune, the wild star. I didn't know that. Yeah, Futura 2000, DST, Celluloid Records, Alan Vega, uh, Z Records, Michael Zilka, Michael Esteban. I played all of them records, Kid Creole, August Arnell. I could go on and on and on and on and on and, on, and people say, I didn't know that. And the reason I didn't know that is because I, I wanted to be exactly what Miju and I did with the face, visage. Well, we don't, nobody needs to know that. I let other people have the credit on the Drummer and the Skids. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a CR78 on Charade, a song, on the Skids album. And if you listen to it, it sounds like a Nola Gay, except it was recorded a year before. I mash them together when I do an audience with Rusty Egan. As a matter of fact, an audience with Rusty Egan, there's people saying, I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The Blitz Club was in between two art colleges.
1: Where it was located was irrelevant to the fact that there were art students who had nowhere to go in a violent, terrible, depressed time. You're in London to study art. You've got away from Scunthorpe and it's even worse in London. And there's like rubbish piled high. Everyone's on strike. Maggie Thatcher shouting and screaming about the new future that she's going to build if she gets voted in. The Labour unions are all being ridiculed by Rupert Murdoch, who's going to close down all the printing. It was a terrible time. The punks are fighting the skinheads on the King's Road. There's violence in the football and the thugs are fighting each other. And It was a Bloody horrible, dismal time. And in the meantime, Rod Stewart drops an album, and Eric Clapton drops Four Six One Ocean Boulevard, and everyone's in LA driving Rolls Royces, and the Clash are singing about bloody violence. So it was kind of like we don't want to have a part of anything, you know. And Saturday Night Fever is the biggest movie ever, and people are going out to the disco and saying, "I was born to be alive." <laughs>
0: I, mean, what I mean, the and, other thing, oh, and
1: they beat you up if you were gay. I
0: mean, the other thing about the Blitz Cup you know, you got Steve Strange on the door, you got Boy George, uh, as the coat check person, you got you Marilyn. as the DJ bringing all these, you know, amazing tracks and, and really breaking yeah. them in, in Britain. You got Marilyn, you got all these fashion designers, future. Um film directors, yeah. you know, this crowd yeah, yeah. was really quite um, quite amazing. Did you so know arrogant. at the time that yeah, this was gonna I be did. so important?
1: I'm so arrogant, aren't I? There's a film called Tramps, absolutely brilliant. Judy Blame, absolutely brilliant. All the artwork, all the covers, the Visage album cover, spando artwork. It was the punk attitude. We're gonna make our own video, make our own art, make our own clothes, design our own logo. We did everything. Spanner Ballet did everything. They just came in and saw it all and said, we want some of that. So I introduced them to Richard James Burgess, said, you've got to get the music right. You know, as a matter of fact, everywhere I went, Record Mirror, Paul Morley, uh, Melody Maker, the powerful people couldn't stand me. Couldn't. Look. Seals and Crofts new album doesn't mean a fucking thing. That's what I was like. They were working on the new Seals and Crofts album. And then they were going to deliver a new Eagles album. And I was like, doesn't mean a fucking light. And of course, Boy George hadn't made a record. Steve Strange and me had possibly released one single called Tar on Martin Russian's defunct record label. Punk was nearly over. The Sting was the star of punk, you know, Adam and the Ants hadn't recorded Kings of the Wild Frontier, you know, Depeche Mode didn't exist, Human League were an underground art school band making, you know, noises and bleeps, Um, and the normal was just another art school bloke who made a record in his bedroom, Daniel Miller. The record industry had people that flew around the world that were internationally important people, and they were gonna sell millions of albums of the next. Whatever that didn't mean a light to us, you know. That's the point. Actually, The Clash released a song called Complete Control, and they wanted control. And you'll always be told, you don't have any control. And I hope every musician and creator that's watching this that is 20 years old owns their recording, owns their music publishing, owns their music publishing company, costs £400 to make one, and never, ever does a deal with anybody other than someone that you pay to do something for you. That's it. Like you would pay someone to decorate your house. You can pay the best, or you can pay a cowboy. So the bottom line is, I have no money from Bizarre. What? That's terrible, how did that happen? I have no money from the team at to the top of the pops. What? We didn't get any money from rich kids for 35 years. I had to fight a court case, and it goes on and on and on. George Michael got told you'll never make a record again. Kevin, you know, Dexed Midnight Runners, the Boomtown Rats, everybody got screwed. Everybody, David Bowie got screwed by his manager. Everybody got screwed. As far as I'm concerned, the music industry has done nothing but screw the creators and is now even more so. Even more so. Have you seen the profits? Have you seen the billions and billions of profits that they're making? They're making over 30 million a day. A day! One day, you'll be looking at the petrol car like it's a steam engine. Well, one day, you'll be looking at Spotify like it's a a dance record player. The future will be Live, instant, transparent, smart contract blockchain owned by the creators and that includes photography, that includes images, everything will be in a control, you can't use it. Like a file, when you open a, an mp3, it's got little things that you can tag it, what's the BPM, who wrote it, who recorded it, you, know, you can put it all in the file an MP3, a WAV, a FLAC. I mean, there will be a new file. That new file will be in a blockchain. And that blockchain will be owned and controlled by you on a mobile phone. As a matter of fact, it won't even be a mobile phone. It will be a screen that appears on your wrist. You'll just touch it. And you wake up in the morning and go, oh, I've got a hit in Thailand being used in a super advert. Because you've allowed people to use your music in adverts if they click here. How? Do you, who has created so
0: much stuff, who's been involved in so many careers, um, make money today then? If that's, you know, something that you hadn't been able to secure in the past because of the record companies, how do you actually move forward today
1: personally? I disappeared for 20 years. Why? Because I chose to. Because I told you I wasn't getting paid. I found Seal as well. I went to Trevor Horn with Seal. I didn't get paid. I signed Mark Armand and owned Say Hello, Waved Goodbye for 25 years, which was covered by um, David Gray in the 1990s. Warners locked me out. They wouldn't correspond. Lawyers wouldn't represent me because I couldn't pay them. I was disgusted by the music industry. So, I just left it. Now, was I a DJ? Yeah, all right, I'll go and DJ. You want a wedding, you want a bar, you want a club? I'll DJ and I'll look after my children. And basically, I didn't drink or take drugs and still haven't for 27 years. And I stayed with my wife um, as long as I could. Unfortunately, she got very ill and then um, she died in 2011. And I dedicated the only album I've made, Welcome to the Dance Floor, Story of My Life, uh, to her. And because um, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't drive a car, I live in central London, I live in a rent controlled apartment, my kids have all grown up. What do I need? I just need to make music. If you say, do you want to be the DJ on Hard FM, the 80s radio program, and here we have Spano Ballet True. I don't want to do that. You know what? With a bit of DJing and a few festivals and a few weddings, I will survive. So I survived. But when people write to me and go, oh, they're playing Fade to Grey on the radio, I go, yeah, I'm not going to get paid. You know, I'm not going to get nothing. I'm over 60. I'm still here. I was homeless because of what happened to me in the music industry. In 1990, I went in a, I went in a bed and breakfast, 1994, to get the house, the roof above my head, even though I had millions of hits and streams. Anyway, the point is, I'm still alive. How many have died? Go on, Google that. Another X Factor, winner of, what about all the K-pop bands in Korea? Suicide, she was only 20 years old. I mean, you've got a rant today. What you've got here today, you've got a rant. Okay. Oh, fucking look. I called Rusty Egan, he ranted. I left the industry for 20 years. I didn't make a tune. I came back and remixed La Rue. Moby, and one more band from um, New York. I met with Steve Strange. And then I found out that he'd been getting all our money. My own mate, Steve, had been getting all my royalties. John McGee's royalties, Dave Formula's royalties. And then I met another guy called John Pitcher, who said, look, we'll sign an agreement. And then I got a lawyer and we signed an agreement. And he might as well have just ripped it up in front of me. He never adhered to one thing he said. Steve Strange did not do what he said he would do, and he signed it. And I've got a copy of it, and it'll be in my book. And I've got a copy of the Visage Agreement with Medjure, Billy Carey, Dave, formerly Barry Youngton, John McGeck, signed by Steve Strange. I've got a copy of my contract. I've got everything that shows you how I, just one person, got robbed by my own friend.
0: I want to end with one thing because you also helped uh, a young blonde woman who came over to the UK in the 80s, Madonna. Can you tell me about what you did for Madonna?
1: Um, I did for Madonna what I've done for twenty other Madonnas. Um believed in her. Believed in her from the minute I met her. She had a boyfriend who's a uh, DJ like me in Dance-O-tier, a Cool Club. Jellybean. And no, before him, before ah. Mark. Yeah. Um um the DJ in the Dania Club. And uh, which is where she did her first performance during the New Music Seminar. And I used to go over for the New Music Seminar and obviously find talent and other people. And They released my records. All I did was meet a guy who said, my girlfriend's amazing, we've got this demo, heard the demo, said, we've got Seymour Stein excited. That's Sire. And I said, look, get, get Seymour to call me because I'd already done a deal with Tainted Love with Seymour. Um, so Seymour used to come and see me all the time, Come, he, I was his A&R man more or less, I'm going to go and see Rusty in London tells me everything, tells me who's playing, you know, we signed the specimen to him as well and uh, B-movie loads and loads, Seymour loved what I was doing so basically, Seymour said, what do you think? I said, I've met this girl, like me, she's really confident, really arrogant, really full of herself, but you have to be You have to be. She's going to go around a load of gay clubs. They're going to love her. She's going to perform the dance routine. She's going to say the outrageous stuff. They're going to love her. And, of course, I want to put her on at the Camden Palace, and I want to mix her record for her. And that was it. He said, okay, let's see if we can get that together. We'll sign her, (laughs) and we'll get the master parts to you in London. So we did. That's what I did. And put her on twice, actually, and got her on at the uh, Hacienda. So basically, I put Frankie Goes to Hollywood on when they were unknown. Uh, I put everyone on, Depeche Mode, unknown. You know, you don't have to be famous, and that's why I'm like now. I I get misunderstood by idiots online, you know. What do you have to do to get you to remix my record? Uh, Make a really good song. Madonna made an amazing song. Everybody get up and do your thing. And I've got my remixes of it on my SoundCloud. In the year 2525 was a demo. It's on an album. The dancer was a demo. When you say, what's a demo? It means recorded in a day, done. Visage recorded their album, finished, in a garage. My Russian garage, he hadn't even built his studio. We made Fade to Grey in a garage. My girlfriend speaking in French, a little hi-hat, a brilliant Chris Payne keyboard part. and It's not rocket science. I'm uh, sorry, if you go on my music, go into my music, you will not find anything that isn't brilliant. That's what I think. Guess what? That's what you got to think. That's what you got to think about the music that you make. And when somebody on the radio says it's not very good, that's their personal choice. It doesn't mean anything to me if I'm not played on Radio Bloody 2. I don't care about somebody on Radio Bloody 2. I care about Pizza Hook calling me up and saying I bloody love that song. Tony Hadley calling me up and saying I want to sing that song. I care about the people I'm working with and the people like... Christian Honan, who has a radio show that I love the music he plays. And then, wow, he's going to play my new record. I get excited by that. DJ's calling me up. Hey, man, I dropped you a tune the other day. Wow, it's really good. I really like it. That's all we do. That's all we do. We make music we love and we believe in it. Welcome to the Dance Floor is an album that I made. And I was making as Visage. In 2013, 14, 15, Midge and I did a song with Chris Payne, who did Fade to Grey, called Glorious. Tony Hadley came in to sing Lonely Highway and uh, Peter Hook came in to sing. But all those songs were supposed to be a Visage album that was gonna be me and Steve back together again. And Midge gave us his blessing We did Glorious, and that was going to be our amendment. So because that album doesn't say Visage, it says Rusty Egan, 10,000 people know about it. But Visage released an album where there's no Chris Payne, no Majure, no Rusty Egan, no members of Visage, just a bloke called Steve Strange, and... You can get Fade to Grey by that Visage with 11 million views. And there is no Visage even on that version of Fade to Grey. And that's the industry that I'm in. I'm in an industry that will steal your brand, copy your music so it sounds like you, because legally Steve Strange signed to Polydor and he's Visage. Oh, what about that agreement that we, no, no, we don't recognise that. Oh, the one with Steve's signature on it, that one. That one with Midge and Billy and Rusty and Steve and, yeah, that agreement. That agreement that you paid me for until 1985. That agreement. That agreement where you paid Midge, you and Billy Curry separately for the last 30 years. You don't recognise that agreement because you only recognize what you want to recognize. Well, that is not a deal. And when I get married and I love you richer for poorer in sickness and in health, that is for life. And I stay with my wife and I've looked after all of my children until now my youngest is gonna be 20 and he's gonna go through college because I made an agreement. And I swore an oath and I did it on the steps of an altar. And that's called an agreement. A record deal is worth not even the paper it's written on. But if you shake my hand and you look me in the eye and say, Rusty, I agree. I'll do that. And then you don't. You're not even worthy of my presence.
0: Rusty, I just want to say at the end, I got the utmost respect for what you achieved, for what you actually did, particularly in British culture, to bring all those amazing artists for your own music and for what you've been involved in. So at the end, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you and keep making the fucking music.
1: See you again, mate. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: All right. Bye.